welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Duke, joined remotely by Jessica Burbank. Good morning, Jessica. Good to be with you. We are both in black. We always get the memo. We're matching again, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about matching. We're here to talk about Manchin. That's right. Uh, Democratic gadfly and hardline centrist Joe Manchin will not be seeking another term as senator. Let's watch what he had to say. I know our country isn't as divided as Washington wants us to believe. We share common values of family, freedom, democracy, dignity, and a belief that together we can overcome any challenge. We need to take back America and not let this divisive hatred further pull us apart. Public service has and continues to drive me every day. That is the vow that I made to my father over 40 years ago, and I intend to keep that vow until my dying day. Now, in order to hold the Senate in 2024, Democrats must defend Montana, Ohio, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And that doesn't even include the need to secure the White House. Now, as for Joe Manchin, of course, yesterday's move did nothing to tamper speculation. We might see him throw his hat into the presidential race in 2028 or perhaps even 2024. It sounds like in this speech, Amber, he was talking about going around the country, bridging that common ground, the things that most Americans have in common that he says the White House would like us to believe we don't. That sounds like someone who has some more political aspirations. It sounds like someone who's going to run for president. It does sound that way. There's been tons of speculation over the past few months about what Joe Manchin's political future was going to be. And he has $10 million in the bank for a potential reelection campaign. So it'll be interesting to see what he decides to do with that money. There's more reasons why people think he might be running for president. Him and his daughter have apparently been pitching to donors the idea of a $100 million centrist political project targeting the quote-unquote political home, uh, homeless. His daughter, Heather Manchin, said in an interview with The Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago that she had registered the nonprofit organization called Americans Together. Joe Manchin has also spoken at several events for No Labels, which is the in independent uh, political nonprofit that's been toying with the idea of launching an independent no-labels ticket to challenge Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the 2024 election. And they released a statement today, actually, in response to Joe Manchin not running for re-election. And they said, regarding our No Labels Unity presidential ticket, we are gathering input from our members across the country to understand the kind of leaders they would like to see in the White House. We will make a decision by early 2024 about whether we will nominate a unity presidential ticket and who will be on it, which seems like a pretty clear indication that Joe Manchin's name is probably near the top of the list for whoever they would recruit to run on that ticket. So I think the speculation is absolutely warranted um, for the idea that Manchin might go ahead and launch a bid against uh, particularly Joe Biden, but also, you know, as an independent, he'd be running against Trump as well. Yeah, I don't see him starting an organization with his daughter as him suggesting he's not going to work with no labels. I think that's just passing the torch down, as many political families do, getting his daughter involved with something stable in American politics. The group No Labels is fascinating to me because showing up on the American political scene and saying, I am not aligned with any particular ideology, I'm not professing what my values are, I'm in the middle. 
it's like putting up a for sale sign in American politics. A lot of their major donors are natural gas giants, CEOs. They're not representing the common man. They're representing the common ground between the corporate establishment of either political party. And I think maybe they try and say, what we're doing is bridging the gap. We're reaching those people that have no political home. That's what they're trying to convince the American public, perhaps. But dollars don't vote, people do. And I just don't see a group like that garnering the support of a lot of Americans. I think the problem is that a lot of people are disenfranchised, apathetic about our, our political process. They they don't want to be a part of it. They've been intentionally excluded from it, a lot of them. And so an organization like this, I just don't seeing don't see getting the base necessary for someone like Manchin being a real contender. Yeah, I think that's right. I've always had a problem with no labels in the sense that I think it represents the worst aspects of each political party, whether it's the neoconservatism and the warmongering from both the Republican and Democratic establishment. They completely punt on social issues entirely. They, they don't want to talk about social cultural issues at all. They're also pretty pro-big corporation. They're, they seem to have no interest in taking on uh, the anti-competition monopolistic nature of corporations today in American politics, and also the massive influence of lobbyists and corporations in deciding uh, what issues the political parties focus on. So the idea that they are the voice for the voiceless, I think, is pretty ridiculous, considering the position that they take on pretty much every issue is very much in line with the uniparty and what they're doing in Congress and in the White House. So I, I completely agree on no labels. I, I don't really have much respect for them as an institution, I would say. The other question that we have to look at with Manchin's retirement is who will replace him in the Senate, and if that uh, retirement will, in fact, give Republicans control in 2024. And it looks like that's very likely. Um, it, right now, Alex Mooney and Jim Justice, the West Virginia governor, are going to be probably running for that seat. And Jim Justice looks like the most popular candidate looks like he would probably cruise to election because he is incredibly popular in West Virginia. He recently changed parties from Democrat to Republican, which was something a lot of people thought Manchin was going to do, but he never did. Um, so if Jim Justice is able to win in West Virginia and Democrats can't uh, you know, win that seat and also keep all of the other ones that they have to in order to keep control of the Senate, I think it's very likely that you could see either a Democratic White House with Republican-controlled Congress or a Republican trifecta. This is one of those moments where we're going to see the more liberal mainline Democrats just melt down, that they're going to potentially lose a seat here with Joe Manchin. But they didn't have that seat to begin with. Joe Manchin was to the right of a lot of Republicans. So I think any Democrats framing this like a loss makes absolutely no sense to me. He's a Democrat only in name. And I don't think he's the kind of person that's a trailblazer, a leader, someone with independent views. He doesn't strike me as an independent thinker. A lot of what he got done when he was in the Senate was putting himself directly in the middle of pivotal legislation and being the guy that says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to vote that way. And then he asks for concessions. That's not what's required from a lot of leadership positions. I don't think he has the experience needed to be a leader. It's very easy to say, yeah, I'll vote with you guys. I'll vote with you all on the economic stimulus. And then last minute, throw a fit, say you're not voting with anyone, force Joe Biden to have a conversation with you. And that's how you want to get things done. 
that's how you want to have your voice heard. It's just not someone with the experience of a leader. He has no leadership capabilities if that's how he got things done in the Senate. So I don't really think we should look to him as this leader figure who can meet everyone in the middle because he's never been that. He's never been a leader. Yeah, I do think it is worth giving him praise, though, for the fact that he was willing to buck the typical Democratic uh, party line on some issues. I mean, on that fight regarding the Inflation Reduction Act, he said, I'm not buying into the Green New Deal climate agenda because my state relies on coal and natural gas and nuclear power for its job creation. And I would be putting all of my constituents out of work, a vast majority of my state's economy out of work and potentially into a recession if I were to go, to go along with those issues. So I thought it was refreshing to see somebody who was more interested in actually representing their constituents' best interests rather than going along with whatever his party said that he had to go along with. So you might have disagreed with some of the stances that he took, but we can't say that he wasn't, I think, in a sense, courageous for being willing to not toe the party line on certain issues and approach things with a little bit more of an independent mind. But we'll see what's next for his political future. We'll see if he ends up getting on that unity ticket for no labels and if people are buying the idea that he is, in fact, a maverick or somebody who represents the average American, the common man, as you said. We'll be back with more Rising next. President Biden facing a mutiny at the State Department? Per new reporting in The Hill, Israel's war against Hamas is deepening divisions amongst the bureaucratic officials. Letters and memos supportive of a ceasefire and critical of Israel's siege of the Gaza Strip are circulating amongst the department. These letters are putting younger staffers at odds with their more senior bosses. This comes as thousands of Gazans began departing the northern part of the Strip during yesterday's four-hour humanitarian pause. Joining us now to weigh in on what's going on in Biden's State Department is The Hill's very own Laura Kelly. Thank you for being with us, Laura. Thank you for having me. So you've been reporting on a lot of the, the discontent within the State Department. It sounds like from the call The Hill had with Josh Paul, who left on October 18th, there's a division, but some consensus among the younger staff, whether it's because the current administration's actions in the Middle East in support of Israel is jeopardizing the United States relationship with a lot of Middle Eastern countries and their global standing. And there's also discontent around the treatment of Palestinians and civilians in Gaza. Do you think the four hour pause, the daily four hour humanitarian pause will change any of this? I think it will depend on what's actually achieved in the four-hour humanitarian pause and the length of the war in general. It's, it's unclear at this moment how the four-hour pause is actually working. Uh, we see a lot of images and we hear a lot of testimony from people in the Gaza Strip of the real hardship that this is for them. I mean, you see them walking down these dusty roads. I saw images of, um, you know, a woman being kind of dragged in a chair because they didn't have any other way to move her. People kind of uh, struggling with, with wheelchairs. Um, people... Uh, fleeing from their homes with no sense of when they'll be able to return and if they get to return, what will be left. Um, but at the same time, the U.S. and its uh, support for Israel and in support of its military operations says in the densely packed Gaza Strip, 
where Hamas uh, has built its infrastructure among the civilian population, this is the only way to try and mitigate civilian casualties as Israel carries out its operations to try and destroy as much Hamas infrastructure as possible and to kill as many Hamas fighters as possible. We hear the uh, spokesperson, John Kirby, being pretty unapologetically pro-Israel and for weeks was very uh, resistant to the idea of having a ceasefire. I don't get the sense that the sort of mutiny from these younger staffers is affecting the administration's policy much, Laura. Um, I wouldn't describe the administration as being kind of unapologetically pro-Israel. I think that they are weighing what they view as one of the most important relationships in um, in the U.S. among among the world. Uh, very important security relationship, a very important relationship based on values. Um, weighing it with these really hard choices of how to address the humanitarian crisis and the position that Hamas has put civilians in in the Gaza Strip. Um, and I think we have seen a shift in the administration's tone and how they are talking about. Israeli military operations. Um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said um, following a trip to Israel last week that we believe there are additional steps that can and should be taken to try to minimize civilian casualties. So this is um, a delicate way of um, the secretary coming out and uh, putting more pressure on Israel to address what is the really high Palestinian death toll in the Gaza Strip. So it could be that this kind of dissent, this discontent, um, this opposition to rushing arms to Israel, to standing behind Israel stall in, in the most stalwart way, um, that the administration is calibrating its messaging. It sounds like staff at the United States International Development uh, or U.S. Agency for International Development, commonly known as USAID, that they have called for a ceasefire. They signed an anonymous letter to the administration. It also sounds like there are some internal dissent memos from within the State Department, one of them actually leaking. Now, you called internal dissent memos sacrosanct. Does this mean the existence of the memos and the leaking of the memos that there's a lot of chaos going on within the, the State Department right now? It's hard to d tell and describe maybe chaos. Um, we have seen specific instances where dissent cables have leaked and in Afghanistan in particular, there was the dissent cable of um, staff raising alarm to the Biden administration that their public comments about the security of the Afghan government in Kabul was uh, and, the, and the Taliban's uh, push to um, to overtake the, the capital city was moving at a much faster pace than what the administration was acknowledging. Um, and what people with State Department officials, former State Department officials um, say is that it's really counterproductive to leak these kind of leak these kind of memos uh, because it contributes to politicization of policy disagreements within the State Department. So I think the people who are um, deciding to share these memos with the press have made a decision that they feel their um, 
their concerns are not being adequately heard and they want to bring the debate into the public realm. Um, but not everybody feels that way. And in fact, Josh Paul, when I spoke with him, he was really against uh, releasing the dissent memos into the public. Um, and his resignation was his way of bringing the debate into the public sphere. And when I talked to um, uh, former former uh, government officials, when I talked to the American Foreign Service Association, they said that until we see mass resignations, um, that's kind of the signal of real discontent um, and, uh, and and really feeling like the, um, the senior leadership at the State Department is not taking their concerns seriously. But at the moment, we seem to only have one resignation from Josh Paul. Uh, but he also has said that he's been uh, pretty uh, humbled and overwhelmed by the messages of support that he's received. So I think that speaks to that there is a lot of discontent and they're reaching out to him for kind of advice, but they're still holding back from criticizing, uh, opposing in total the Biden administration's policy by remaining in the State Department in government. As we're watching this tension play out, Laura, we also learned that President Biden is going to be meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping. Obviously, this is a, a really difficult time in terms of American foreign policy. What do you make of the timing of this meeting happening as the Biden administration is trying to figure out the right tone to take on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yes, I, I think the uh, the Biden-Xi meeting is one kind of logistically works out. There's this Asian Pacific Economic Forum Summit, which really makes sense for President Xi to attend um, and for President Biden that it's being held in San Francisco to attend. Uh, the president has kind of a home court advantage, but at the same time, he's not inviting Xi to Washington to kind of say that everything in the relationship is okay. But the Biden administration, um, and, and coming from the former Trump administration, I, U.S. policy has really kind of tried to shift and focus on the competition with China, managing the conflict with China, and uh, recognizing that China is a major player on the global stage that can have an impact in all of these conflicts, including Israel's war with Hamas um, and, of course, Russia's war in Ukraine. And a senior administration official speaking with reporters last night brought up how President Biden is going to raise with Chinese President Xi about China's close relations with Iran. And the administration, um, as part of their focus and support for Israel in the Middle East, is really trying to prevent a wider conflict from occurring um, with Iran. And they uh, hope to have a conversation with Xi about what influence he can exercise to warn Iran from taking any action that might escalate tensions. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Some more disappointing polling for President Joe Biden. Voters trust former President Trump to navigate issues with Ukraine, Israel, and China more than Biden. That's according to a new Bloomberg News and Morning Consult poll. Poll. It found that more voters said they trust Trump to handle relations between the U.S. and China. 46% said they trust Trump with the issue, while 34% said they trust Biden more. 20% of respondents said they didn't trust either one of them to handle foreign policy with China. 45% of respondents said they trust Trump to handle the Russia-Ukraine war compared to 34% who said the same of Biden. 
21% said neither candidate is trustworthy to handle the war, the poll found. Slightly more voters were undecided when it came to the Israel-Hamas war. The survey found 24% of respondents said they didn't trust either Trump nor Biden to handle the unfolding conflict in the Middle East. 43% said they trust Trump to handle the war, while 33% they trust Biden with the conflict. I think these are a lot of impossible issues. I trust very few people to handle any of them, but shocking that the two main contenders for the highest office in the United States are not trusted with handling conflict in the Middle East or conflict with China. It's just honestly insane that these are our front runners. But I think it tells us a lot about what the mindset is among most American voters and that there really is a lane there for an independent candidate. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's also worth pointing out in this poll, though, that when voters were asked which was their single most important issue, only somewhere between one and three percent identified either relations with China or relations with Israel and Palestine as their top issue. The bigger issue for them was the economy. Forty one percent of voters identified that as their top issue. But I will say I'm not surprised to see that Trump does perform better than Biden on these foreign policy related issues. People acknowledge that the U.S. did not get involved in any new wars while Trump was in office. At most, he, there were a couple of drone strikes that were done against um, Syria and Iran. But overall, he kept the U.S. out of escalation. And that, I think, was what most Americans were really yearning for after that 20-year conflict in Afghanistan. He was the one who started the process of negotiations between the Afghanistan government and the Taliban to hopefully pull out U.S. troops. Biden basically threw the negotiation um, timeline in the trash, which led to this debacle in terms of his withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the foreign policy decisions have only gotten worse from there. And I think Americans feel at this point that we could be on the cusp of World War III. It seems we're only getting more entangled in other countries' wars and other countries' conflicts. And we're sending tons of U.S. money that could be hopefully used very well here at home. Um, to other countries and their ability to defend themselves. And so it's no wonder that I think people are looking backwards at the Trump administration and saying, yeah, things were a little bit more secure when he was in office, despite all of the hand-wringing from the Democratic and Republican establishment, as well as the mainstream media, about this idea that he was the one who was going to get us into World War III. Yeah, three in five Americans living paycheck to paycheck doesn't bode well for all of those people casting ballots whose number one issue is the economy. And I think when people consider a Joe Biden presidency, even if foreign policy is not their number one issue, they look at $4.3 billion proposed to be given to Israel. They look at the huge packages that Ukraine and Israel are asking for, and Biden pledging his unavowed or his vowed support for Israel and for Ukraine. They're not hopeful that this is someone that has their pocketbooks, their bills, them keeping food on the table and keeping their house as their number one. I think that leads to a lot of mistrust. It leads to them not performing well in the them expressing their doubts. I think most people don't even really care too much about the outcomes of foreign conflicts. What they really care about is, where, will there be a security concern back at home? Right. And will our public dollars be going to fund these conflicts when we have a lot of economic strife here at home? 
Yeah, your point about the foreign aid is really important because what you're acknowledging there is the idea that the economy and these foreign aid packages are intertwined. And you're right. People do see that when they're paying more for gas and groceries, when inflation has run rampant, when wages have been relatively stagnant and the only job growth really from the Biden administration has been a result of returning to pre-pandemic economic conditions, they don't want to see $10 billion going off to Ukraine every three months when Congress negotiates another continuing resolution or another spending package. And on the economy, voters said that they trusted Trump 16 points more than they trusted Biden. So it's not even close. And even when you run down these issues of infrastructure, housing, crime, immigration, Trump outpaces Biden on all of those, which are considered important issues to voters. And I'd also point out that on this abortion issue, which has sort of been the crux around Republicans next on a state and local election basis, Biden only leads Trump by four percentage points when compared uh, or excuse me, Biden only leads Trump by four percentage points, which is a lot slimmer of a margin than I would expect. And Trump has sort of moderated a little bit on the abortion issue. He, of course, was responsible for appointing those Supreme Court justices that ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade via the Dobbs decision, but since then has come out in opposition to a federal abortion ban and has kind of washed his hands of the issue. And as critical as pro-lifers have been, uh, to him on that, he, of course, deserves credit from pro, the pro-life movement for appointing those Supreme Court justices. And uh, if, if this moderation on the abortion issue is something that can get him back in office, I think they would be right to say, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. It's also amazing. I did field reporting in Kentucky. I just spoke with a lot of everyday people out on the street there about what they felt about the state ballot initiative for abortion, either a ban uh, or also tacked onto this same issue was whether or not the state would fund abortion, that it could come out of state-run health care. Many people voted against the bill because of the latter, but disagreed with the former, but they were lumped together. And a lot of people thought that this overturning of Roe v. Wade was something that Biden did because it happened under his presidency and didn't even attach the reality that Donald Trump appointed the justices that made this decision to the outcome of having abortion, uh, you know, not being protected under federal law anymore. So it's shocking what the American mind believes. Correla uh, correlation is causation in the mind of a lot of American voters. And Jerome Powell, being someone who was appointed by Donald Trump, but the economic turmoil because of his policies of constantly raising interest rates with the story that it will resolve inflation, even though it's made our economy far worse, it doesn't matter that he's a Trump appointee. He's been in office during the Biden presidency, and a lot of the impacts of higher interest rates are things that people credit to Biden. And when Biden talks about Bidenomics, he makes economics the central focus of his campaign, which is not good for his reelection when the majority of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And an alternative outcome, whether or not they say it's the explicit outcome of raising interest rates, is now everyone who can afford to loan money out. So big banks, government treasury bonds, who can afford to purchase those, now they're making that much more money in interest off of the money they loan out. Higher interest rates are a huge money grab for the wealthiest people in our country. And so what's going on under the Biden administration, regardless of whether or not 
he's who appointed Jerome Powell, he's going to have to answer for that. Why did he leave Jerome Powell in office? Why didn't he try to change the trajectory of how our economy was headed when he came into office? And he doesn't have good answers for any of those things because they believe that raising interest rates is all good and fine when it's directly connected to three and five Americans living uh, monthly, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, it's also interesting that Biden is okay with the raising of the interest rates while he's repeatedly lobbied for passing these massive spending bills that he claims will boost the economy, but really end up just causing more rampant inflation. So yeah, agreed, he has a ton to answer for in terms of the economic decline of the United States. We'll be back with more Rising after this. People, planet, peace. That is Dr. Jill Stein's campaign slogan. She is throwing her hat in the 2024 presidential ring, announcing a Green Party candidacy yesterday, citing a broken two-party system. Watch. The political system is broken. The two Wall Street parties are bought and paid for. Over 60% of us now say the bipartisan establishments failed us, and we need a party that serves the people. I'm Jill Stein, and I'm running for president to offer that choice for the people outside of the failed two-party system. We'll put solutions to the crises we face, crushing inequality, endless war, and climate collapse, and we'll put these front and center in this election and on the ballot across the country. The twice Green Party presidential nominee was recruited to help build Cornell West's third party run earlier in the summer, but is now running as an independent. Stein ran in 2012 and most recently in 2016, angering Democrats who said she siphoned off votes from Hillary Clinton in close swing states, including Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania leading to Donald Trump's ultimate victory. She will likely draw ire again, especially since Biden is polling in those battleground states within a few percentage points from Donald Trump. Polling earlier this week revealed how insurgent candidates, RFK Jr. and West, are throwing a wrench in the works, with the former ranking in as high as 24% in some key states. Per New York Times-Siena College poll, it remains to be seen how Dr. Stein will impact these numbers. So a lot of folks are calling Jill Stein a spoiler candidate. They always have. Howie Hawkins also running most recently with the Green Party. It sounds like this is going to be a crowded field no matter what. RFK Jr. in the race, Cornell West in the race. We still have Marion Williamson with the Democratic Party. It sounds like this is going to be crowded no matter what. We can't really blame Jill Stein for taking votes away from Hillary Clinton when they feel like Hillary Clinton doesn't represent their political interests. They're not owed the votes of anyone uh, who is to the left of Donald Trump. That's not how the political process works. So I think more voices are generally good. I think it's good for democracy. Yeah, I, I don't buy the idea that Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election in 2016. Um, people make that argument by saying in Pennsylvania in particular, if just half of Jill Stein's voters had flipped to Hillary Clinton, then she would have won that state because she only lost by about a percentage point. But I think the idea that all of Jill Stein's voters or even half would have voted for Hillary if she weren't in the race is an act of great conceit and arrogance. 
Um, Jill Stein has a fundamentally different voting base than the Democratic establishment, including Joe Biden, including Hillary Clinton. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the people who went out and voted for her probably wouldn't have voted at all and possibly could have even voted for Donald Trump. So it's not as simple as saying all of Jill Stein's voters came from Hillary Clinton. And I think it's fair to take the same tack in 2024 in regards to Joe Biden. And at this point as well, when you have RFK Jr. also running as an independent, there's a debate over who he would take more voters from. And I think popular consensus has recently come to the conclusion that he would take more votes from Donald Trump. So it kind of ends up being a wash. If you have RFK Jr. polling at 20 to 24 percent as an independent candidate, Jill Stein jumping into the race, potentially taking votes from Joe Biden. Between those two, it should be pretty even in terms of Trump and Biden losing to the independents. Yeah, when we consider the vast majority of voting age Americans that don't participate in elections, it becomes obvious that there's a lane for third party candidates, independent candidates running every election cycle. It's very obvious that Donald Trump and Joe Biden aren't extremely popular with their very high unfavorability ratings uh, and a small faction of very you know, devout supporters. A lot of these are mainline Democrats on, on our side. And Donald Trump has ignited his own base of the Republican Party. But I think when we consider the plurality of votes needed, it's not going to work if we have Jill Stein and Cornell West and Marion Williamson perhaps running separately. I really think what we'll eventually see is they gain their own bases throughout the campaigning and then eventually run together. I think that would make the most sense considering these candidates represent a lot of the same ideas. But these are ideas that neither Biden nor Trump represents. And so they're not pulling any votes away. If anything, they're igniting a base of voting age people who never show up or people who wouldn't have been excited enough to cast a ballot ultimately in 2024. I think you're absolutely right about that. That strategy you're alluding to as well of these independent or third party candidates pulling their resources together, pulling their bases together is a similar conversation to what's happening on the Republican side in terms of the challengers to Donald Trump. There's uh, some popular uh, commentary around the idea that the remaining Republican primary candidates that aren't Trump should choose one candidate to coalesce around, the rest should drop out, because that would give that one person a better chance of beating Trump in the early primary states, particularly in Iowa. It's sort of the Ted Cruz strategy from 2016, but done a little bit earlier in a way that it could potentially be more effective. But I don't buy that just one person, regardless of who it is, in terms of the current primary challengers, would be able to take out Trump anyway. I also wanted to bring up that New York Times poll we saw last week in terms of Joe Biden's uh, potential to lose in about five out of seven major battleground states. That's a big deal. And I don't think the proper answer to that is for the Democratic Party to shut out potential challengers to Biden as if he's going to magically become more popular or magically appeal more to the working class Americans who mostly reside in those states and are really revved up to vote in 2024. I think the proper answer is actually to tell Biden to step aside. And to their credit, there have been some Democratic strategists who have done that. Bill Kristol has called for Biden to step aside. 
David, David Axelrod in an X thread last week suggested that if Biden were to continue his reelection campaign, it would only be for his own personal benefit as opposed to the benefit of the country. And you're going to see, I think, more people come out like that as these polls continue to drop and continue to show that Biden is not performing well. And even on some of these singular issues, Trump outpaces Biden by about 20 percentage points on who people trust to lead the economy more. People trust Trump more on foreign policy and pretty much every other uh, top five issue for voters. So to turn their attention on attacking people like Jill Stein and RFK and Cornell West, I think really misses the point, which is that it's Biden and his policies that are unpopular. And you have to fix that problem rather than just eliminating potential competition. Yeah, Joe Biden really relied on young voters and voters of color in 2020. And he's lost support among young voters and voters of color. When you look at the Arab American vote and how that's just disintegrated since Biden came into office, he had almost 60 percent of the Arab American vote, helped him deliver Michigan. And now it's pulling at around 17 percent, whether or not Arab Americans will vote for Joe Biden, 17 percent saying they still support Joe Biden. That's a huge drop. But let's also reflect on the fact that voters from 18 to 24 overwhelmingly want a ceasefire. Joe Biden was asked by reporters just yesterday if there will be a ceasefire in Gaza. And he said, no, none, absolutely not. He's going to lose a lot of young voters. A lot of people have pointed to his failure to deliver on his promise for student loan debt forgiveness or cancellation, and he hasn't done that. But I think really what we need to look at is what's going on in Gaza. This has ignited a lot of young people who haven't even been really a part of politics uh, in this way before. A lot of these voters are so young that they weren't really politically activated during the Iraq war. And this is their first entry point into political activism. And they're on the opposite side of Joe Biden. So this young vote he really relied on, he's finding himself on the opposing side of a pretty divided conflict. And I think that's really going to hurt him. Similarly, Hillary Clinton had her own policy failures and her own personal failures in calling a huge proportion of the electorate, everyday working class people calling them deplorables. And so when you have all these Democratic consultants blaming people like Jill Stein, independent candidates as, as spoilers for their elections instead of reflecting on their own policy failures and personal failures, it's really just an excuse. The candidate came short of representing the needs and wants of the American people. And that's what it is at the end of the day, an excuse if you're going to blame Jill Stein's and Cornell West. To your point about Biden losing his base of young and uh, uh, people of color voters, the New York Times Siena poll found that Biden only leads in voters under 30 against Trump by about one percentage point. And Trump uh, got about 22 percent of black voters in that poll, the gap with Hispanic voters had fallen dramatically as well. And those are all really bad signs if you're a Democratic candidate, because I doubt that Biden can make up for that loss in white working class voters who went for Trump pretty hard in 2016 and 2020. So I think you're right. They have a lot of soul searching to do. We'll be back with more Rising after this. The United States military has a recruiting problem. Bigger bonuses, looser enlistment requirements, and increased incentives to draw new recruits are not working. 
According to a report in Military.com, only two branches, the Marine Corps and Space Force, have met their 2023 active duty recruiting goals. Per the same report, COVID-19 had a lingering impact on recruiting efforts, but experts also attribute barriers including ineligibility and decreased overall inclination to serve are keeping enlistment numbers low. Moreover, as Axios points out, patriotism among younger people has taken a nosedive. A recent Gallup poll shows 39% of people polled are, quote, extremely proud to be American, and only 18% of those are 18 to 34 years old, which is usually the target age for enlisted falling in that age group. Here to discuss the downtrend in recruitment are retired U.S. Navy Commander Kirk S. Lippold and retired U.S. Marine Corps Colonel Pete Metzger. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us on Rising. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm curious about these uh, ineligible factors, as, as well as this decline in patriotism. That's, of course, a serious issue. And I think sometimes we're really hard on the military for some of the methods that they take in terms of recruiting. But we also know that a lot of young people who would even want to join the military aren't able due to not meeting the physical or mental fitness standards. So uh, we'll start with the colonel. Uh, what do you make of the young people being generally ineligible to serve? And does the military have some kind of role to play in tackling that specific issue? Well, I think the problems are, are numerous coming together where you say, uh, one of the biggest problems is having recruiters have access to the candidate pool of young men and women. And many schools and many school districts are restricting recruiters for reasons other than, uh, for political reasons, so they can't get to the young men and women to pass the idea. It's interesting to note that only 1% of this country serves in the armed forces. That's a shockingly low number. And I think that the messages that are trying to be put out by the military are clear, but I also think the counterforce to that is social media. So we're thinking a lot about veterans today. I have noticed, many people have noticed, that a lot of services provided to veterans are coming increasingly from charities and nonprofits, and veterans aren't receiving the same benefits from the federal government that they used to enjoy. The VA's office just really isn't what it used to be. And I think taking care of our veterans who have served is incredibly important, especially when it comes to mental health care and health care in general. Do you all see this as a reason, perhaps, that recruitment numbers are down, that folks are looking at what this means for the very long term? I want to bring you in, Commander Lippold. Let's start with you. I think that may be one factor, but I think overall, when you look at it, American people overall over the past few years have lost trust in their government institutions. Yet the most trusted institution still remains the United States military. And I think it because it has the highest standard of ethics and integrity. Sure, like any large bureaucracy in some ways, there may be stumbles here and there, but overall the Americans trust that the US military always gonna be those white hat guardians of freedom. Those young men and women, those veterans that we are going to celebrate tomorrow they chose to serve our nation. And many people want to find ways to give back to them. I mean, the Colonel and I are involved in this group, charitiesforvets.org. And part of that is because the American people, when they learn about the sacrifices these young men and, men and women make, they actually want to give back. And giving that by learning more about them, they also get access to them. 
And when young people have access and learn what the military is really about, what a career of service is, what being big part of something bigger than yourself really means, then people tend to want to be more interested and have that propensity to join. So it's more of an upward spiraling circle. And I think that's what we're looking to try and help them do. We saw an ad recently that looked a little bit different than maybe some that we've seen in the previous six months to a year. One that I thought reminded me of the military ads that I would see maybe 10 years ago that focused on that idea of self-sacrifice, of, uh, of serving on behalf of something bigger to yourself and also having patriotism for your country. Do you think that that's a recognition from the military that perhaps that message was a little bit more enticing to young people than some of the more recent recruiting methods, which focused more perhaps on maybe diversity and, and equity and, and some of their, uh, their drives to make the military more inclusive? In my opinion, the ads that appeal to a young woman or a young man are the ads that show it's tough to be a soldier, sailor, airman, or Marine. And it's tough, it's rewarding. And if you can measure up, we might take a look at you, which is very different than uh, places where people dress up in funny costumes and that kind of stuff. But we're appealing to the hardcore spirit of American patriots. And in my opinion, the more challenging the ads make it look, the more people they attract. But I'll defer to my, my colleague on that. I, wouldn't, I, I, I would say that the Colonel is exactly right. It's the challenge, not everyone can join. Not everyone can become a Marine. Not everyone wants to serve as a sailor out on the high seas deployed around the world. I mean, join the Navy, see the world, and you really get to do those types of things. But in reality, years ago, when you competed with an economy, the military recruiters were focused on having these young kids that you could come into the military, learn a skill, and you would gain benefits for life. For example, VA home loans, et cetera. These days, it's becoming more about that contributing to a larger purpose, that actually working on behalf of your nation for the sake of your fellow citizens, and that it's not easy. It is going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. But by challenging and do that, you rise to become a better person. And I think that really appeals to a yacht of young men and women because it breaks them out and differentiates them from everyone else they went to high school or college with. It makes them unique, and that's what a lot of people really strive to be these days. There's a lot of coverage about how recruiting numbers are down, but serving isn't what it used to be. Of course, defense has changed quite a bit over the years with the you know increasing technology we have when it comes to weapons. A lot of what the U.S. military is up to, if they're on the offensive somewhere, has to do with airstrikes and drones. Is the recruiting goal relevant to how we do defense still is the amount of personnel that they're recruiting for, especially when it comes to those who are fighting on the ground. Are those numbers really required for us to do defense effectively as a nation? Let's start with you, Colonel Metzger. Well, again, I think that the uh, you would be very pleasantly surprised at what young men and women can do when they come into the armed forces. They do things they never thought they could be doing, never thought they would be doing, or never thought they should be doing. They're smart, they're drug-free, they're physically fit. And when you see these young people get trained on advanced weapon systems like the commander had on his ship, it's absolutely astonishing what they can do. Not what they can't do, but what they can do. 
And we have a system whereby people two or three years younger than the entry level uh, soldier, sailor, airman, marine are teaching them how to do these things. And it increases their confidence and increases the lethality of the U.S. Armed Forces. And I would just add, leveraging off what the Colonel said, is that these young men and women want to be taught some of the most advanced technical skills that are out there. Even today, whether you are an infantryman in the Army or whether you are running the advanced Aegis weapon system like I had on USS Cole, at the end of the day, they are learning valuable skills that they can apply in or out of the military, but it's the challenge of learning those technical skills, how they can apply them. But more importantly, they also learn how those skills work to defend our nation, how to keep us free, how they will be out there at the tip of the spear defending US national security interests so that their families back home can be safe can enjoy the freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution. And when they understand that larger picture, that's really why they want to serve, because now they know they are directly contributing to the defense of our country and their fellow citizens. Commander Lippold and Colonel Metzger, thank you so much for joining us and happy Veterans Day to you both. We appreciate your service very much. Thank you very much and happy uh, Marine Corps birthday to my fellow Colonel there. A complaint filed with the Federal Election Commission alleges a coordinated communication and an unreported in-kind contribution to the Joe Biden presidential campaign and related entities, Fox News reports. America First Legal, an organization run by former Donald Trump White House aide Stephen Miller, filed a 13-page complaint with the FEC late last month. The complaint reads... Evidence suggests that the respondents failed to disclose coordinated expenditures constituting in-kind donations with respect to the infamous letter of 51 former intelligence officials claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop story had all the classic earmarks of Russian disinformation. The alleged campaign finance violation could trap Secretary of State Antony Blinken and former senior intelligence officials who, quote, asserted without evidence in 2020 that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, according to Fox News. The complaint claims that Biden, the Biden for President campaign in 2020 rather, the Biden Victory Fund, the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, and the Biden Action Fund should have reported on their coordinating efforts. According to Fox News, neither the Biden 2024 presidential campaign nor the Democratic National Committee responded to inquiries for this story. The State Department also did not respond to an inquiry about Blinken's role from Fox News about the matter. So this uh, seems like a pretty legitimate inquiry to me, Jessica. I think the letter of 51 was basically an act of election interference. These individuals who signed on to this letter claiming the Hunter Biden laptop story had all of the earmarks of Russian disinformation, didn't even have the authority to make that determination. They were just asserting their opinion, yet presented it as if they were speaking from the uh, authority of current intelligence officials, and not to mention the FBI had already authenticated the veracity uh, of the laptop prior to this letter going out. So it was not only bogus, but it also serviced the big tech censorship efforts surrounding the Hunter Biden laptop story. It was this letter that helped encourage places like X and Facebook and Instagram to prevent the New York Post from being able to access its account 
to prevent other outlets from sharing the New York Post story regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story. And this all happened just a month or so out from the 2020 election. So it sounds like a lot of the claims that they've made are, you know, fair and legal about the Hunter Biden laptop. There's a lot of things you can say when you're running for office saying this sounds like Russian disinformation or looks like Russian disinformation. It's not the complaint here. The complaint is an interesting one. Legally, it's about the coordination between the PAC, between the DNC, between the Biden Victory Fund, between all of these various entities that, you know, when you're a certain kind of campaign organization, you can't be working together. Right. So you can't have a coordinated effort between, you know, an organization that's a 501c4 and an official political campaign. You can't share your information. You can't share your intel. You can't have a coordinated effort and strategic planning done together. It sounds like that's what they have some kind of a complaint to file about. That sounds like the nature of this FEC complaint. I think it's important that we actually have our day in court for this because it's so common, especially for major political candidates with either, you know, political party on the establishment side where they have a ton of resources to secretly be working together. There's so much overlap. It's a revolving door of staff between PACs and between major political campaigns. It's obvious that strategy is shared. There's not much to be done about it, but I think the political industrial complex deserves some breaking up. So I'm happy about this complaint for, a, I think, a very different reason than a lot of people are. But I think it's good that, that it's being brought forth before the FEC. Yeah, and they have some legitimate evidence to back up this idea that the Biden campaign was co coordinating with the 51 intelligence officials on this letter. According to former CIA deputy and acting director Michael Morell, he testified to the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committees that he was first contacted about signing on to this letter by none other than Antony Blinken, who was then a Biden campaign advisor. So it seems like the Biden campaign was whipping votes with the express intention of getting people signed on to this letter that they could then disseminate as proof that, at least in their eyes, as proof that one of the biggest stories about the Biden campaign, one of the biggest negative stories about the Biden campaign was false and then coordinated with big tech outlets and pressured big tech outlets to go ahead and censor that. And there have been polls about the effect that this had on the election. Suggestions have been made that up to a quarter or maybe a third of Biden voters would have thought differently about who they were voting for had they been aware of the corruption and bribery allegations that were present in that laptop hard drive. But they either didn't know about it because it was censored or they thought that it was false because of the combination of the censorship and this letter from these intelligence officials. The fact that it was coordinated, coordinated between the campaign and the intelligence officials intentionally to uh, affect the election is precisely where this camp, uh, complaint comes from. I think it's shocking. We have members of the Democratic establishment that are fear-mongering around foreign influence in our elections. When Joe Biden got $4 million over the span of his political career from APAC, it's just insane that we talk about foreign election interference as if it's the boogeyman because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, because of you know how the 2020 election went all together, all of the claims that there was Russian collusion, that there was some kind of fraud. We talk about it as if it's the boogeyman when it's just staring at us right in the face. There's obviously foreign influence on American elections. You have it plain as day. It's reported on. 
you can go on OpenSecrets.com and search the lobbying money and the campaign contributions taken by American members of Congress by APAC. You had Jim Himes talking in a meeting recently saying, you know what, we have a lot of meetings about Israel, but nearly none on Palestine. Why is that? And it's because they're spending a huge amount of money influencing the conversations in the halls of Congress. And I just think it's insane at this political moment that we're now having to relitigate all of the things that were said about Russian disinformation in 2020. But I think it's good because we obviously have foreign influence on our political process, on our elections, uh, but we're more mad about the fake ones, about Russian disinformation, about Chinese disinformation. I think influencing public opinion is probably just as bad as directly buying members of Congress and people running for public office in the U.S. Yeah, I think one of the other troubling things about this specific complaint as well is you mentioned the revolving door of individuals on campaigns to government and then to these uh, cushy TV gigs or consulting roles. And in this case, these intelligence officials who signed on to the letter, some of them were rewarded with roles then in the Biden administration as sort of a pat on the back or a thank you for helping to influence the election with false material, not to mention the fact that so many of these individuals, including the ones who were supposedly Republicans or were members of Republican administrations when they were in the intelligence community, had donated tons of money to the Biden campaign. I think the complaint alleges that about 98 percent of the political donations among this group of 51 intelligence officials went to the Biden campaign versus the Trump campaign. So they had a vested interest in disseminating this letter, signing on to this letter to help out their buddy, Joe Biden. And it was at the expense of the American people who were given false information and were in many cases not even given access to the information to give them the ability to determine for themselves whether or not they thought it was real. It was um, simultaneously this act of uh, preventing the American people from accessing information and also claiming that they were apparently too stupid to figure out for themselves whether or not that information was true. And it's a constant demeaning of the American people when we assume that the government knows better about misinformation when repeatedly they lie to us and we find out, you know, two, three years later that what they told us was totally bunk. What's fascinating about this case is even if all of the officials who are working for the Biden campaign in 2020, the Biden Victory Fund, the Democratic National Committee, the Biden Action Fund, whether or not they were communicating in an official capacity, right, with their work emails, or if they were as individuals saying, this is something we really care about, let's circulate it with our personal cell phone numbers or whatever amongst ourselves and release this letter. It doesn't really matter to me. Does it make a difference to you, Amber, whether they use their work email or not? It's just sickening that these people all know each other very well, can all collude on an effort like this. Does it matter if they're working for separate organizations or not when they can work together in this capacity? To me, it doesn't really matter. And it really reveals how much of a political machine we have in this country. So just this case happening at all, I think will open a lot of Americans' eyes to how elections go on a normal basis. That this isn't that shocking to many people who have worked on political campaigns, myself included, who have seen inside of the American electoral process. It's not at all surprising. I'm sure many of these people know each other very well, have worked together before, 
and have very niche ways of circumventing the FEC regulations, we know most of them do. We know that this is something very standard. So I think it's good that it's being exposed. And I think there should be some more laws against this kind of collusion from happening because the exact result of this is we continue to have establishment candidates that are handpicked by the party and lifted up by all of the same people who work on every single Democratic election. You're right that this kind of thing happens all the time on campaigns. I think what's so disturbing about this particular case is just the massive impact and scale that it had in terms of the 2020 election. It really seemed like this was uh, an issue that most Americans would have thought differently about the election if they had known about it. In fact, in the complaint, they allege that four out of five Americans uh, said that they wish they had had access to this story, but were discouraged from looking into it because of this letter. So I'm very fascinated to see where this case goes and kudos to America First Legal for bringing this challenge forward. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Over 100 journalists, writers, and media workers took over the lobby of the New York Times office in Manhattan last night, staging a sit-in to demand that the editorial board call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. In a statement, the Times responded, The New York Times has extensively covered the Israel-Hamas war with fairness, impartiality, and an abiding understanding of the complexities of the conflict. We fully support this group's right to express their point of view, even as we disagree with their characterization of our coverage. But some critics warn that a ceasefire would actually help Hamas. Michael Oren, formerly Israel's ambassador to the United States, Knesset member writes in a recent Hill op-ed, for Israel, accepting a ceasefire means victory for Hamas. For Israel, a ceasefire means death, which is precisely why Hamas wants one. If imposed, a ceasefire would enable the terrorists to get away with mass murder. It would empower them to replenish their rocket arsenal, and repair whatever damage Israel has so far wrought to their military infrastructure. As in the past, much of the international aid channeled into Gaza would be siphoned off by Hamas to augment its ability to kill Jews. Here joining us is one of the protesters who was there last night, Elena Come del Junco, writer and professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So it sounds like the the protest was not just about demanding the New York Times to call for a ceasefire, which has popularity within the United States. About 65 to 66 percent of Americans support a ceasefire, as well as the United Nations, Amnesty International. But it sounds like a lot of the writers are upset with the New York Times coverage, really giving a voice, publishing an op-ed on November 5th, making the case to not have a ceasefire in Gaza by Israel, what do you make of the New York Times' recent decisions, and is that an accurate framing of the protesters' qualms with the New York Times? Yeah, thank you. I think that that's right. So the New York Times, we're asking as a enormously powerful media outlet, particularly, I'll note, in a democratic administration as we have now, to influence the public opinion, but the public opinion already stands behind a ceasefire. So really we're calling on the New York Times to step up and take responsibility in using its editorial board's power to call for a ceasefire, which the Biden administration has so far refused to do, but also, as you say, to improve its coverage, which contrary to the Times's statement in response to our protest, 
while extensive is hardly fair or balanced. The New York Times, of course, is one very important media outlet, but it's not the only one. And so we're choosing to target the New York Times because of its prominence and influence. But this is also symptomatic of the media landscape as a whole. So this equally applies to outlets like the Washington Post, CNN, Network Television, CBS, ABC, NBC, etc. To say nothing of outlets like Fox News or, or the New York Post. So while the New York Times is a particularly important target, we're really using this attention to think about the media more generally and the role they play in making it impossible for a ceasefire to take place and contributing to the conditions in which many more thousands of Gazans and Palestinians will lose their lives. To play devil's advocate a bit here, the New York Times has also been accused by Israel of having advanced knowledge of Hamas's October 7th attack that killed 1,400 civilians, saying that the presence of photojournalists who were embedded with Hamas on that day meant that they should have given some kind of warning to Israeli defense forces. And also the New York Times had to issue a correction in an editor's note previously when they claimed that that hospital that was bombed in Gaza was bombed by Israel when it ended up being, uh, according to U.S. Uh, intelligence sources, an act of uh, rocket coming from Gaza basically being misfired. So I'm not sure I buy the argument that the New York Times is somewhat aggressively pro-Israel or not representing both sides of the conflict accurately. And I'm loath to defend the New York Times, but um, that's been my perception of it, at least. What's your response? Well, I think there's two specific points that you raise. So Israel and the United States both have one of the most sophisticated or two of the most sophisticated intelligence operations on the planet. If the New York Times had advanced knowledge of this attack, it's inconceivable to me and to anyone else that the Israeli intelligence forces and the US intelligence forces would not have advanced knowledge of that attack. So that's one thing. The second point, you raised the issue of the hospital, actually hospital in Gaza, which was bombed. The New York Times immediately issued a correction, or what they called a correction, to repeat the Israeli line the American line that the hospital was not bombed by Israeli forces, well, that was in the focus, well, that was on the front page of the world's news. A few days later, the New York Times published an extensive article showing that the evidence provided by the Israeli and American intelligence services indicating that the missile that targeted the hospital came not from Israel, that that evidence did not support the Israeli assertion. So the New York Times ended up through their own reporting and analysis, having to walk back their reprinting and stenography, their parroting of the information or the assertions provided by the Israeli army, who has been known to issue simple falsehoods to the media. I want to talk about the hospital bombing, the Al-Hahi hospital that became a central focus of mainstream media. We're aware of, you know, Israel bombing refugee camps, dropping 6,000 bombs on Gaza when there's 2.2 to 3 million civilians. But this became the central focus because it was initially reported by an IDF spokesperson that this was a bomb dropped on the hospital through an Israeli airstrike. Then that post was deleted, and the Israeli spokesperson said that they got their information 
uh, from Reuters, which is shocking because I would think an IDF spokesperson would have the best intelligence on what the IDF military is up to. But the New York Times ran with the story and then subsequently had to pull back on that story and then again produce some analysis of the live feed of the rocket fire exchange between Gaza and Israel that night. And they said the jury's out. We're not really sure who did this. It's very possible it was an air, Israeli airstrike after they reported on a lot of the speculation that was parroted by the administration that this was a Hamas detonated bomb. It was misfired coming from the hospital. It sounds like the New York Times has not done a great job backtracking when they falsely reported. And they've now seemingly taken this approach of using neutral language. There was an explosion at a refugee camp. There was an explosion at a hospital. And this recent response from the New York Times sounds like they're making the case to not have a ceasefire. It sounds like they're using neutral language when Israel is the aggressor and providing actually defense for the arguments that the Israeli military is making to not have a ceasefire. What do we make of this as journalists? Because I don't think it's our job to parrot both sides. It's our job to listen to both sides and report on what we know to be the truth. It seems to me like that's not happening at the New York Times. What do you think about all that? What's your response there? Sure. So it would be bad enough if the New York Times or any journalistic outlet were simply parroting or repeating assertions from both sides. The fact is that they're repeating assertions. They're parroting one side in this conflict, I think, as you illustrated very well, that they will issue corrections as the Israeli intelligence service issue, issue putative corrections. I think that they're not only parroting the Israeli assertions without doing any fact-checking of their own, despite the fact that they're perfectly capable of doing so. They're capable of doing their job and they're failing to do so, but they're actively using language that dehumanizes Palestinians and essentially makes it impossible to hold the party who is responsible for the mass death, the over 10,000 deaths in Gaza, responsible for that catastrophe, this humanitarian disaster and unfolding genocide. So you referenced a headline, and I think it's worth reminding the viewers what that headline is. So after several 2,000 ton bombs were dropped on the Jabalia refugee camp last week in Gaza, where thousands of people had taken refuge and have lived as refugees for decades, they published the headline, Explosion Gazans say was airstrike leaves many casualties in dense neighborhood. Now, there's no question, there's no controversy about where this explosion came from. The Israeli army confirmed it. So an accurate headline would look something like Israeli airstrike kills hundreds in crowded refugee camps. It's very easy to write a headline. I trust that the journalists at the New York Times are literate, media literate, and capable of writing an accurate headline. They have access to information and they are choosing not to do so, just as the editorial board is choosing not to call for a ceasefire and supporting the Israeli and American refusal to acknowledge the value of Palestinian lives, quite simply. The New York Times over the past few months has seemingly been resistant to respond to protests of this nature. Previously, there were some trans activists who showed up several times outside of the New York Times headquarters, claiming that the paper was responsible for anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ plus reporting. And the editorial board, or sorry, excuse me, the editors of the New York Times responded by actually chastising staff members who were coordinating with those protests. So do you, 
feel optimistic that the Times is going to respond to your activism? The Times is a behemoth and it's part of the American media landscape. It's part of the American public sphere. It's not an official state media as one has in other countries, but it plays the role that state media have in republishing, in repackaging, in repeating whatever line the American and now the Israeli government provides. So it's going to be very hard to move them, but I do think that it's precisely the reason why this sort of action is important, but also that this sort of action needs to be repeated, that groups need to continue keeping the pressure up on the Times and other similar organizations, and also to use their voices, to use this sort of action to target the Times, but also to raise awareness among the public, not to trust, to undermine the credibility of the Times, that their credibility is going to be harmed unless they make serious steps to correct their course, both in their putatively factual reporting, but also in their editorial line. All right, thank you, Elena. We're gonna leave it there. Thanks for joining us on Rising. Thank you so much for having me. Trump loyalist Elise Stefanik filed a formal ethics complaint against the judge overseeing the former president's New York civil fraud trial. Stefanik wrote in a letter to the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct that Judge Arthur Engeron has displayed a clear judicial bias against Trump and broken several rules in the state's judicial conduct code. The Congresswoman from New York wrote, quote, this judge's bizarre behavior has no place in our judicial system where Judge Engron is not honoring the defendant's rights to due process and a fair trial. So in this complaint, Jessica, one of the main issues that Elise Stefanik takes with the judge's conduct is the fact that he issued this summary judgment prior to the trial, uh, agreeing with a tax assessor's valuation of Mar-a-Lago at $18 million. And this has been a major point of contention that we've talked about on this show before as well, because the tax assessor's valuation of a property is almost always lower than a real estate valuation. And so using that as his valuation for Mar-a-Lago and ruling in favor of that assessment, I think already set the trial off on a bad bias start. Even CNN Business published an article where they talked to real estate experts who slammed the judge for his decision in valuing Mar-a-Lago between 18 and $27 million. Um, Eli Baracha, who's a chair of the School of Real Estate at the Florida at Florida International University, said appraisal values and market values are just not the same thing. It's a well-known fact. That's especially true for properties that are unique, and it's very easy to argue that this is a unique property. Dina Goldentire, who's an executive director of sales at Douglas Elliman in South Florida, said that the tax assessor's valuation isn't even considered in the ultra-luxury marketplace when trying to value a property. So people can question Elise Stefanik's motivation in bringing this uh, complaint against the judge, but I think she has good standing. To me, it feels a little disingenuous, this coming from Elise Stefanik. You have Judge Engron being criticized for giving political contributions to campaigns. Judge Judges give political contributions to campaigns all of the time. 
it's a very common practice. You also have judges making determinations uh, when it comes to the value of property, when it comes to income that a person has. They hear a lot of cases regarding people paying child support. Judges are responsible for a lot of financial determinations. If the property was worth more than what his tax documents say, he should have been paying more in taxes and valued it higher. I think the rich circumventing taxes through having their properties valued less when they have to pay their property taxes is ridiculous. If Elise Stefanik really cared about the the judicial system and the due process of law and how citizens are treated when they're brought before a court, whether or not they have a proper jury trial, she would be drafting legislation to reform how justice is brought in the United States. If you go into a courthouse and you listen in on arraignments for just everyday people who have been arrested the night before, you'll listen to people who have never been brought before a jury sentenced to stay in jail for multiple months at a time. They're taught or they're told by the judge to pay bail at whatever amount is set. If you have a private attorney, you can sit there and watch the judge ask the private attorney, what do you want bail to be set at? And the private attorney can go into the the audience in the courtroom and say, how much money have you brought to bail him out? And then set bail at that exact amount. I've seen it happen time and again. They hear cases for citizens with the private attorney before those being represented by a public defender. It's just, to me, a little bit gross for someone in Congress in a position of power to focus so much of their energy on this case instead of drafting some kind of judicial reform legislation. To me, it feels incredibly dishonest to care far more about this case than the cases that are heard every single day before courts in the United States. I think your point about the tax assessment, the tax valuation being too low, though, is not a recognition of the way the real estate market works, but the way you want it to work. And for me, that doesn't fly in a legal context. They're holding Trump to a standard that no other luxury property owner has been held to. Every single luxury property owner has a tax assessment value that is far lower than their real estate valuation. And that's the way the market has worked for a century. Um, so the idea that he should be held accountable in, in court for a tax office's assessment of his property value, I think, is pretty ridiculous, not to mention the fact that there's no victim in this case. The people who lended him this money, based on his valuation of his Mar-a-Lago and New York properties, were repaid in full. They got all of their interest back. So when you're having a fraud case, who was, who was the person that was defrauded? And the judge hasn't identified a single victim in this case. She also points out some of Judge Engeron's less tangible behavior in terms of the way that he's smiling in front of the cameras and seems very excited about the attention he's receiving. I also think this complaint stems from, of all places, some reporting from Laura Loomer, um, the woman who once chained herself to the front of the Twitter building because she claimed she was censored. Um, but her reporting is pretty irrefutable here. She has screenshots from the wife of Judge Engeron, Dawn Marie Engeron, where she's posting on Twitter um, F Trump, and she has photos of the former president in an orange jumpsuit and is frequently replying to Trump allies with some very aggressive and explicit language. And after Laura Loomer reported on these screenshots, all of the other members of Judge Engeron's family who were on social media locked their accounts to prevent people from looking at them. So that combined with his political donations, I think makes clear that this is a family that seems like they're out to get Trump. To me, I have a hard time feeling bad 
for the luxury real estate owners who have their property valued according to the market rate rather than their tax rate. And then poor Trump comes along and has his valued at the rate which he pays taxes. I just don't feel bad about that when I think about judges based on their own discretion on an everyday basis for people brought before the court who committed the same exact crime will face a completely different sentence sentence based on who their judges. That's how the criminal system works in the United States. And so Felice Stefanik is quite upset about that. She should consider drafting legislation for judicial reform. I just have a hard time feeling bad for these folks who are luxury real estate owners and how their property is valued when everyday people who have committed petty theft in order to feed their kids because they've been excluded from the economic system are now put in jail for months at a time and lose their jobs and kids are without a father before they've even had a trial by jury. And if we really cared about the actions of judges in the United States, I think Elise Stefanik would put her focus on Clarence Thomas, who's taking a bunch of money from Harlan Crow, who has Venmo transactions between his aide and folks close with the attorneys who are having cases heard before the Supreme Court in the weeks and months to come. It's insane the amount of flexibility that's given to justices that are on the conservative side, but then you have the the judges rather that are hearing Trump's cases that are under immense scrutiny. It's just when the same scrutiny isn't applied across the board to all judges and the same defense is not given to all plaintiffs, It just feels very dishonest to me. I don't think you have to feel bad for Trump to acknowledge, though, that he is being held to a different standard and to have concern that that could be due to the politicization of the justice system. I mean, the idea that you could go after your your political opponents by holding them to a different standard than all of their compatriots, all of their... Um, I guess you could say colleagues in the luxury real estate market industry. I don't think you have to say I have sympathy for people who might have to pay a big fine because we believe they defrauded investors. But I do think there has to be an acknowledgement that this could be due to political bias. And having a politically biased justice system is not just bad for Trump. It's bad for all Americans. And when we see the Biden administration uh, raiding a pro-life activist home in front of his children and accusing him of violating the Faces Act for defending his son, while meanwhile they didn't do anything in regards to the illegal protests outside of Supreme Court justices' homes in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, which they are illegal in Virginia to try to sway or intimidate justices through protest, that's a double standard, and it's one that's done based on politics. And I don't want to live in a country where political bias is what runs the Justice Department. I don't want the government to be acting in terms of its political underpinnings or who happens to be president when they're deciding who to prosecute. I think it's a problem just as much it's a problem that the judicial system in the United States is both classist and racist. If you can't afford to post $3,000 bail, are you automatically required to now serve a sentence to stay in jail for months? That's not how our Constitution suggests it should happen. But frequently it is the case and it follows the line of class whether or not you can afford to post cash bail or not. So now you're punished for being poor in the United States. And it also very obviously follows the line of race in the United States with disproportionately African-Americans being put in jail. And so it feels like more of the same when you have the justice system seemingly be unfair across political lines, the uh, amount of discretion that our judges have in the supposed system of justice, I would call it a penal system in the United States, is far too much. 
And the way we read that out, I don't think it's a lot of what neoliberals are proposing to use AI to make decisions about arraignments and judicial decisions that are very common. I think really we need more legislation to regulate uh, how the court system works in the U.S. because it's strayed so far away from the U.S. Constitution that it's absolutely insane. I think it's equally a problem that a judge can make a determination, perhaps based on their political persuasion as they could, based on how they feel about race or how they feel about the character of the plaintiff before the court. It feels unfair to me. And it feels like it's not following our Constitution's stipulation that you need a trial by jury, that everyone has a right to that. And so to me, it feels wrong to be more mad about Trump being on trial than you are about the everyday cases uh, that are heard in the United States of America. And at least Stefanik is in a position of power to do something about it. And it just feels dishonest that, you know, she's not proposing legislation and it is instead trying to specifically focus on this one judge. If Elise Stefanik were to support mandatory minimums and three strike laws, would you say that she is helping to reform the judiciary system in the sense that judges would have less say over the outcome of a, of a plaintiff's uh, or rather a defendant's conviction? No, I think if she proposed that all cases are decided on by a jury rather than a judge, that that would be a step in the right direction. Okay, fair enough. We'll be back with more on Rising. Republican Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn announced a series of subpoenas, most notably one on the estate of deceased wealthy financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, including the flight logs from his private plane. Let's watch. And since we're in the business of issuing subpoenas now, here are a few more that I've filed. A subpoena to Jeffrey Epstein's estate to provide the flight logs for his private plane. Given the numerous allegations of human trafficking and sexual abuse surrounding Mr. Epstein, I think it is very important that we identify everybody that was on that plane and how many trips they took on that plane and the destinations to which they arrived. Epstein died in 2019 while awaiting trial for charges of sex trafficking of underage girls. Though deceased, interest in his multiple private jets has remained constant, including on the Lolita Express, which allegedly flew prominent people and minor girls around the world, public figures, including Bill Gates, Prince Andrew, and Donald Trump, among many, many others. I think this is why many people were paying attention to Ghislaine's Max Ghislaine Maxwell's trial while the media wasn't. She had a huge trial in New York. She was sentenced to 20 years. She was found guilty of everything we knew Jeffrey Epstein was up to. And I think what we thought would come out of that would be some public reckoning with the flight logs, which we never got. And I think we know that there are far more accomplices to what Jeffrey Epstein was up to than Ghislaine Maxwell. So I'm quite excited that, you know, Blackburn is issuing a subpoena here because I think the American public wants to know and deserves to know. Yeah, exactly. And I would also mention Bill Clinton as one of the individuals who repeatedly was taking flights on the Lolita Express. And I believe the Clintons had actually been to Epstein Island a couple of times as well. And I think one of the dots that's not really been explicitly connected 
in the Jeffrey Epstein case outside of independent journalists who have been looking into his financials is the idea that Jeffrey Epstein was able to get these very high-profile clients, perhaps through blackmail. Perhaps he would have them involved in this underage sex trafficking ring, and then he would blackmail them into investing uh, their money with his firm and allowing him to manage their finances. And that might have very well been why he got wealthy. And to your point about Ghislaine Maxwell, 100 percent, her little black book, her list of clients, should have come out during that trial. And the fact that the judge ruled in that case that it was immaterial or not relevant to the trial is fairly ridiculous. There's no crime without the clients. I mean, there's, there's no sex trafficking ring. There's no Ghislaine Maxwell providing victims unless there's a demand for the services. So we absolutely should know who those individuals are. And it seems quite obvious that there are people that they're trying to protect throughout this process, and it's why there was so much skepticism over the idea that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. And I would also say that this comes, this uh, subpoena comes in tandem with a new report that says a brothel that was based out of Massachusetts and Virginia uh, was frequented by some pretty high power, highly powerful individuals, according to a statement from a law enforcement individual who was involved in this. The case goes back to the summer of 2022, when investigators identified buyers through surveillance phone records and interviews. They are doctors, they are lawyers, they are accountants, they are elected officials, they are executives of high-tech companies and pharmaceutical companies, they are military officers, government contractors, professors, scientists, potentially hundreds of individuals who took the services of these uh, sex workers. And this is a problem clearly beyond just the Epstein case, where people in power use their power to engage in despicable, disgusting, inhumane behavior and repeatedly get away with it because they think that they're above the law. And in some cases, unfortunately, in our system, they are above the law. And this uh, brothel case also gets back to this idea of potential blackmail. When you have individuals who are politicians um, or elected officials or individuals who otherwise have their finger on the lever of power, it's, uh, it's, it's a possibility of blackmail and extortion when they get themselves involved in these immoral behaviors. Um, it's the possibility that elected officials could be selling out the American people for personal protection because someone is holding something over their head. So there's a national security element to this as well that doesn't really get talked about enough. Yeah, that little black book that Maxwell had, if you're the DA's office, certainly this is evidence that would lead to further investigation at the very least, if not more trials. It's insane to me how they think that now that Jeffrey Epstein is gone and Maxwell is in prison for 20 years, that their work is somehow done. It absolutely can't be done. And it seems that that's the way forward for the DA's office. And so without Blackburn subpoenaing this information, I don't know if we could see further legal action. I think it would be the case that these powerful people are above the law. And I think it's disgusting what they were up to. Um, but I think you made make a good point that it's, it's more than just the acts themselves. 
It's the fact that this becomes a part of the lifestyle for the elites in the United States, that they can leverage this for political and financial favors, that they can use this blackmail to get more things done, to get more power, influence, and money in our society. And the American people just have a right to have access to that information, regardless of if uh, the little black book, the flight logs that Maxwell kept are confirmed or not. I think the public just has a right to see that evidence. There are so many court cases where evidence becomes public that the public has no business in knowing. But when you're someone with a lot of resources like Maxwell was and you can afford really good attorneys, certain things don't come out and are not known by the public. And that's really unfair. And so subpoenaing this information is really important, but we also need full investigation of it. And we need those people to be brought to justice because so many times we have it become central in a campaign, uh, especially on the right these days, where we talk a lot about human trafficking and how it's a huge problem. And I think the American public cares about it a lot more than ultimately people who are serving in public office end up caring about it and our judicial system cares about it. And I think you raise a good point that a reason for this could be that the very people that are guilty are the ones making decisions on that front, especially when you consider the clientele of that brothel. Right. And let's not forget as well, J.P. Morgan settled for almost $300 million with the women who claim that Jeffrey Epstein abused them. Um, because of their involvement in this, uh, this, the finances of Epstein as well. Um, I also always think about, whenever we talk about this case, what Madison Cawthorn said when he was in serving in Congress. He said that he was invited to an orgy and that it wasn't uncommon for politicians in Washington to be involved in these weird, depraved sex and drug parties. And everyone made fun of him the Republicans basically pushed him out of the party and ensured that he wouldn't win re-election. And when he first said this, I thought about the Epstein story. I thought about even some of the depraved things I've seen in Washington, which don't rise to this level or even close. But still, I found myself horrified by what some of the people in this town do. And I just couldn't believe that people were so hard on him and so uh, dismissive of what he was saying. To me, it seemed obvious that something like that would, would happen among high-level high politicians. Um, and the idea that he was pushed out of the party because of saying that, I think, lends more credence to the idea that it was probably true. We're going to have to leave it there. We're rising after this. Social media influencer Douglas Mackey has been sentenced to seven months in prison for interfering with the 2016 election and is the latest interviewee on the Tucker Carlson show on X. Here's a refresher if you need it. The Justice Department announced that Mackey, who went by the name Ricky Vaughn on social media, was handed a seven-month prison sentence after being convicted at trial for conspiracy against rights. Mackey, who was a supporter of former President Trump, was convicted of running a scam in 2016 that allegedly fooled thousands of people into believing that they could vote by text message. The DOJ alleged Mackey conspired to, quote, injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate one or more persons in the free exercise and enjoyment of a right and privilege secure, secured to them by the Constitution and laws of the United States, to wit, the right to vote. Here's Tucker introducing the issue on his show. 
If someone had told you even 10 years ago that you could be indicted by the federal government and go to prison for 10 years for making fun of Hillary Clinton on social media, you would not have believed it. It's a free country, we have free speech. But it turns out not only is that possible, it has likely become much more common because the actual war is over information. One of its first casualties is a man called Doug Mackey, who during the 2016 election made fun of Hillary Clinton on Twitter, and then a few years later found himself the subject of a federal raid, an indictment, and then a conviction. You, I want to put this up. You posted this on Twitter. This is a meme. It says, save time, avoid the line, vote from home. And it's got a picture of Hillary Clinton. Text Hillary to this number. Did you make this meme? No, I didn't. Oh, you didn't, you didn't create this? No. Where, where'd it come from? I found it uh, on 4chan. Okay, so it was floating around the internet. Yeah, these kind of memes were floating all over the place. And you posted it on Twitter. Why did, what was the point of that? Uh, well, pardon my French, but it was called a shit post. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this a lot at the trial. I testified. Uh, just sort of a joke, rile up everybody, muddy the waters. And uh, mostly just because I thought my audience would find it funny. Here's some more of Tucker's conversation with Mackie. Let's take a look. Um, so we have to, and I want to play this. This is from Hillary Clinton. This is from this April, so long after you were indicted, uh, long after, after you went on trial. And this is Hillary Clinton describing that meme. There was just a trial in Brooklyn where a guy who had been one of the main I guess he was one of the main people running memes against me in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He went from what you could consider free speech. I mean, both Nancy and I have pretty thick skins. People say all kinds of things about us. But he went from that to ha running a very deliberate effort to mislead people about where and how to vote. Yeah. So it went from speech to action meant to subvert the election because thousands of people who guilty. they targeted yeah. through their algorithms, oh, I can text my vote for Hillary Clinton. So Hillary Clinton, we, I want to deconstruct that in some greater detail in a minute, but it, Hillary Clinton apparently took that very seriously. You were using, using, quote, algorithms to subvert the election with that meme. I don't even really know what she means by that. I don't know, how, uh, I guess you post something and it gets taken up into algorithms. I'm not exactly sure. I was surprised that she said that. I Did you have that. personal algorithms that you used? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, it's just copy, paste, and click a button. So this guy is going to spend seven months in prison over this. He was facing up to 10 years all over reposting what is obviously a joke meme from 4chan. Um, I find this incredibly concerning and disturbing. Um, these types of means regarding voting uh, by text were pretty prevalent during the 2016 election on both sides. And it was universally acknowledged that these were a joke because conceivably no one would be stupid enough to actually believe that you could vote via text. The fact that only one person got swept up in actually being prosecuted over this um, and it's someone who didn't even make the meme in the first place. He simply reposted it once as a joke. And now Hillary Clinton is accusing him of some sophisticated vote suppression effort. 
is just beyond the pale. And I really feel for this guy who, as he said, was S-posting on Twitter throughout the election because he supported Trump, um, never imagined that he would be going to jail for simply exercising his free speech rights on social media. I can imagine the courtroom, this guy just saying, Your Honor, I was just posting. Hillary Clinton <laughs> framing this as he was running memes against me tells you just how literate she is when it comes to being online. But I really think the outsides focused on this by Hillary Clinton, which is rich considering her history within the Democratic Party, subverting the progressive vote. But just the Democratic establishment as a whole, people who care about the integrity of elections, being more upset about this scheme, I do think maybe it was intentional, but I don't think it's as severe as when we consider there are more polling places open in you know, Milwaukee than in, in Madison. When we think about, uh, or rather more polling places were open in Madison than Milwaukee, despite Milwaukee being more populous, when we consider what happened uh, just this past Tuesday, in Mississippi, a state that's 40% black and around the city of Jackson in Hines County, you had polling places just run out of ballots and people's vote not counted. So the voter suppression's built into the system. It's much more convenient, I think, to, po to focus on this individual and focus on the memes than focus on the real problems with the electoral process in the country and really how people are disenfranchised because we have chosen to focus on this instead of investing in election integrity. But even candidates like Hillary Clinton, who make a big deal about this, are probably the exact same people who benefit from there being more places to vote in Madison than in Milwaukee. These are people who want to subvert the progressive vote within their party. And so I just think it's a distraction to focus on this instead of the real problems. Yeah, it certainly seems like this is just more of Hillary Clinton's bitterness that she didn't win in 2016. She wants to go after someone who has relatively little power. Uh, yeah, he had a lot of followers on Twitter. I remember him being on the platform back in 2016. I'm pretty sure I followed him and he followed me. And everybody knew that this was a, a sat satirical account. Everybody knew this was a pro-Trump account. It would be the equivalent of someone in 2020 seeing a meme from Cat Turd and saying, oh yeah, this guy's telling me how to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, it really is that inconsequential and that stupid, this one meme that he posted. And Hillary is going off on this terror and encouraging the prosecution and sentencing of him over his free speech rights. It's incredibly disturbing, but unfortunately, par for the course for her because she's so obsessed with power and so obsessed with destroying her political enemies. I also think it's worth mentioning that Douglas Mackey was not even charged immediately after posting this meme. This wasn't an investigation that happened shortly after the 2016 election. Instead, uh, Hillary loses, Trump takes office. Then years later, Joe Biden gets inaugurated, and it's seven days after Biden's inauguration that Douglas Mackey is arrested for this supposed crime of meme posting. And I think that makes it even clearer that this was an act of revenge, an act of showing people who supported Trump online that Hillary Clinton has not forgotten about you, and her and the political establishment are going to do everything they can to silence you. And to me, this is a message to other people who don't agree with the establishment, who support outsider candidates at the expense of the political establishment, that 
they're going to come after you. This is an attempt to try to chill speech among those people who are posting subversive content. It's incredibly personal for Hillary Clinton. This is not, I care so much about everyone's voice being heard in our democracy and them enjoying their right to vote. This is about Hillary Clinton coming up for excuses as to why she didn't get the vote she needed to win in key swing states where her electoral votes were really needed for her to secure the presidency. She doesn't want to admit that she failed as a candidate. And she should be very aware that this is reality, considering she was using her personal funds and she had control over the account of the Victory Fund in the DNC and Bernie Sanders' staff in Iowa in the first caucus, where it was pretty clear that Hillary would not be victorious there, that they took away the voter action network, the political tool used to follow up with voters and remind them to vote on election day. She took it away from the Bernie Sanders campaign, the DNC revoked their access to it just weeks before the caucus. I mean, it's very obvious that she wanted to subvert the vote of the progressive party, but it's only a problem when the vote's being subverted if it was going to her as a candidate. And I think that kind of political bias is exactly why she lost. I think everyone knew she was an opportunist who only cared about her political career. But I think everyone's exhausted uh, from having this Hillary Clinton, I lost tour that's been going on for seven years. I think we're tired of just seeing Hillary Clinton do interviews. I don't want to hear her anymore. I know. I'm actually really glad you brought up her subversion, her subversive uh, attempts on the progressive vote in 2015 in the primary, because her tone when she says this guy, Douglas Mackey, was running memes against me was exactly the way that she talked about the so-called Bernie bros and their alleged misogyny in their online attacks against her. Um, she really does have contempt for anyone who doesn't celebrate her with fully open arms. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, Jessica. It was great to be with you. And we will be back next Friday, of course. Matching unintentionally again, maybe? Always. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next Friday. Bye, y'all.